Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. In this episode, I speak to Benjamin Zweig of Revelio Labs, a company that has created the world's first universal HR database. In our conversation, Ben and I talk about how working in IBM's HR analytics department prepared him for the launch of Revelio and about the multitudinous potential uses of his product, from tracking the movement of top talent to correctly identifying which company would win the vaccine race to understanding the global trends around remote working and falling wages. We began by talking about the great 20th century author, Stefan Zweig. Yeah, yeah. My my dad was a big fan just because of the last name, but I don't think we're related. And also we're not related to Martin Zweig, um, uh, another famous financier who was at one point, I think, the richest man in America. But no, no relation to either. So we got to we got to start our own legacy. Oh, well, Ben Zweig will be the will be the new one. Are you from um, uh, is your family from Austria originally? Um, yeah, somewhere Eastern Europe, um, you know, hard, hard to say. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, that's my, um, my own self-indulgence sorted. Um, so I was just looking at your, your profile a little bit. It, it seems like you're both a professor and an entrepreneur. And I was wondering if you saw yourself as a professor moonlighting as, as an entrepreneur or, uh, <laughs> the, or the other way around, or you found a happy balance between the two. Yeah, yeah, big big identity struggles. Um, no, I, you know it's it's hard to say. I, I guess I guess I'd more define myself as an economist, and um, and teaching is part of that. I love teaching, um, and I really like being at at NYU Stern, where 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 I am now. Um, but I really just teach like a class a semester, uh, maybe two classes a semester, just to kind of keep a foot in academia. But no, full time, full time entrepreneur these days. You're an entrepreneur. Okay, so you're you're an entrepreneur with doing with a dabbling in in professorship. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we Ben? Why don't we go back a little bit and just understand um, if you could just walk me through a little bit how you came to create Revelio Labs and and just just the story a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. So so my first my first um, real corporate job after after being in academia for a bit, um, was, was working at IBM where, where I used to run the workforce optimization team. Um, and that was a really interesting role because we were analyzing mostly HR data to try to improve IBM's operational performance and, and realized there that, um, you know, while we could analyze lots of fascinating data from our own internal HR records, we really had no clue what was happening at competitors. And if you want to, um, you know, do, do something strategic, you really have to be able to, to see how you're differentiated. So what was the, so, um, what was the, what was the cutting edge of analyzing HR data back in at IBM back in those days? Yeah. So IBM, I think was, and probably still is um, at the cutting edge of, of HR analytics, people analytics, and we worked a lot on skill alignment, so making sure that that the employee base was aligned to the needs of the market. Uh, we worked a lot on retention, um, site selection, promotion strategy, uh, compensation, really anything and everything workforce related. 
Um, and it was really cool. I mean, there were really fascinating projects we did there. So retention is, uh, you hear an awful lot about things like, um, you can see signs that someone's thinking of leaving, perhaps if, if their attendance changes, things like that. And then, and then um, skills alignment, how's that, how does that work? Is it in terms of what they describe their skills as being or what their manager describes their skills as being and what the, what the overall manager describes the required skills as uh, are needed? Is it all based on words and people's opinions or, or, or how did that work? Yeah, so it really varies based on whether you're using internal or external data. I mean, internally at the time, we we had a pretty a pretty robust skills taxonomy, um, which was which which you know I think it was it was compiled from a few different sources. One was manager input, another was sort of the projects that someone worked on, so it would automatically be filled out, and individuals were were invited to edit it as they saw fit. So so it was it was pretty comprehensive. And then, based on the skills that we um, that we saw uh, from from the employee base, we could also analyze the skills that were in demand from the market. So, especially in the in the consulting business, which is roughly two thirds of the IBM business, or at least was at the time, um, you could sort of see what skills clients were requesting, and um, and what employees were able to charge the most for for their services. Nice. So you could you could sort of get a sense for the demand for skills, and then matching the the supply and demand was was really the the big exercise. Do you think a client would be more aware of the value of the of the data that the consulting business would be receiving at that point? Do you think they might start charging for it now, or is it still would it, would it would that would that model still work today? I think it would still work today. Um, I mean, some some of it was obvious. You know, we saw that. Um, you know, COBOL and other outdated skills were, you know, were, were unable to charge uh, as high enough, as high a premium. But just because of, um, there was a lot of legacy business, there were a lot of people in kind of outdated skills or kind of cold skills and transitioning them to, to hotter skills was pretty difficult, especially because, um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to get rid of people um, and it's hard to retrain people. So it was pretty costly. So, so we wanted to make sure that, you know, if anyone was being let go or retrained, that, that it was, you know, we got sort of the biggest bang for the buck. Interesting. Okay. So um, you were at IBM and you were working on this on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis and you, and you saw an opportunity. How did that, what, what, what did you see? What happened? Yeah. So, so I got, I got really, um, I started kind of uh, mingling with the broader HR analytics community, and um, and there's a very active um, community of people doing people analytics in New York, and and got to know some of those folks and and saw that they were working on very similar problems to what I was working on, and um, and also doing it based on internal data. So there was a lot of duplicated efforts, and thought you know isn't this isn't this silly? Like why why couldn't we do this for all companies at the same time? Um, and started looking into um, data sets that kind of mirrored a company's HR database. So, you know, whenever a company says uh, someone is employed, that information is mirrored in someone's resume or online profile or something like that. So we started looking into those data sets and, and found that um, there's really a, just a tremendous amount of, of data that's in the public domain um, that's that that really, I mean, mirrors what's in an in internal HR database. So you mean broadly, kind of the LinkedIn's, the Glassdoors, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Anything and everything that's in the public domain, 
is, um, you, you know, is, is something that we, we wanted to take a look at. Uh, okay. But the really key challenge there was, was that every company has an entirely different way of categorizing their workforce. You know, they use different titles, different conventions for seniority levels. So the big difficulty was building a, an occupational taxonomy that was universal and can be compared between companies. So, so, you know, the, the simpler part of that was we had to know that titles like, you know, lawyer and attorney meant the same thing. We also had to know that titles like, you know, vice president, um, in finance were, were very different than vice president in, um, in the corporate world. So, so we even had to differentiate between the same title in different, in different, uh, companies or industries. And, and that was a huge technical undertaking. And so we, we worked on this for quite a long time before, before launching. And, and then when that started taking shape, we, we thought, okay, this is, this is really, th- there's just enormous commercial applications here. For sure. So just to, just to take a step back. So you were in a, so you, you had seen the, seen the world from within a company and obviously a company has a very good understanding of its own HR roster. Um, and, but you saw that you could use external data to build up all the companies. And so you could um, have a very kind of detailed and up-to-date vision of what the whole market looked like. Um, so, but we're talking about people's job data. Was it anonymized or was it, um, was it with names attached as well? So, you know, it actually, it, it actually does not need to be anonymized. Um, so, so even with names, it's, it's squarely in the public domain. But when we deliver this to clients, we, we do not include name level. We, we aggregate it. And that's really just as an added layer of caution. And also just mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, it's, it's a mess at the individual level and we don't, you know, we, we deal with that ourselves. We, we don't want clients to have to deal with it. Sure. Okay. And so the challenge was obviously, first of all, scraping all this information from the, from the various publicly available sources. And then you were, you were saying standardizing it so that it would then be searchable and manipulatable. So A, as you say, changing all the names so that they're the same, standardizing all the names. Um, but then did you, did you build some kind of interface as well? Or, or did, do you extract analytics reports yourself? How does, how does, the, how does the product function? Yeah, so so we we don't really do the scraping ourselves. We work with with multiple scraping partners who do that. And really, what we put together is kind of the the um, the analytics layer on top of it. So we we um, you know build these taxonomies, we adjust for biases, and we we put together a comprehensive universal HR database. So an HR database for all companies in a way where you can compare across companies. So so then once we have that, there's really three things that we deliver. So one is a curated data set. And there are a bunch of clients where that's perfectly suitable and they, and they just want the data. So it, that's, that's a big part of what we deliver. Another is... Sorry, that would just be just like a kind of pristine, very easily manipulable um, version of all of your data altogether, the entire data set. And is that, is that as an API? Would, that, would, that, would they have kind of pure, free-ranging access through it? Sure. Yeah, it could be through an API or just a feed through S3. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's, okay. it's very flexible um, and, and built in a way where it's, where it's very easy to slice and dice and fit within a traditional analytics workflow. 
And can they search, for example, by company? So they could um, say, look, I'm really interested in what's going on with this company and its and its employee situation. Or like can they or they can search by, you know, by what what is the situation at the moment with associates in investment banking in general, for example, the associate level? I mean, is it completely you can you can slice and dice it however which way you want? Yeah, exactly. Completely flexible. So so any company, any any role, any any employee characteristic. Um, yeah, really, really anything you can you can imagine. We also have a way of um, kind of automatically identifying competitors. So if you are interested in one company, let's say, you know, it's a PE firm that's doing a deal on a single company, we could, um, we could also collect data on, you know, seven or eight competitors, um, just, just to, just to get a, a better sense of, of where they fit within the, within the competitive landscape. Okay. So, sorry, that was the first way that you, you present the data to, date, mm-hmm. data to companies. Um, you, you, were, you were saying you had three, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the second way is through uh, kind of custom analyses, and we'll put together reports um, just on a handful of companies. And that's, that's really suitable for, um, you know, funds or clients that, that, have, um, that have kind of custom analyses that they want to do or very specific questions or really want to get a deep dive into, you know, a handful of companies. And then the third is a purely self-service dashboard. So that is uh, kind of what we're moving toward. Um, we have a few clients using that now, but but I think we want to move more in that direction. And that's, that's sort of, um, we, we'd ideally want to build that to displace both, both the data feed and the custom report to make it flexible enough to do whatever analysis someone wants and um and have have it be kind of easy to download data from that too so that's essentially like buttons that you can click saying you know these are the options and then they can kind of tick tick boxes and things like that so it's a little bit more um user-friendly perhaps than the than the first the first method yeah yeah exactly i mean we're, we're kind of going for like a um user-friendly version of a of a bloomberg terminal type situation sure wow Sure. Um, okay. And so, uh, who uses you? So mostly, um, I would say a little over half is in, um, is in the financial industry. So hedge funds, private equity, um, some sell side, uh, we also have quite a bit of academics and corporates, uh, corporate is, is certainly growing as, as a share of, of clients. And among that, you know, consultancies are big, um, and then competitive insights teams at companies. And does everyone use you for the same thing, or do you find that different different folk use you for different strokes? It really varies so much. I mean, um, yeah, th- there's just there's just so much variety of of use cases. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, we we get um, certainly people want to use us for hiring and attrition of key roles. You know, if salespeople are leaving. That's uh, presumably a really bad sign. Um, you know, hiring of key roles, that's big. Um, you know, people care about the the quality of employees and looking at uh, the backgrounds of new hires, maybe like educational background or previous company or industry experience. Um, salaries is really big. Um, so, so how salaries are trending, um, whether companies are offshoring. Uh, we've done a lot with transitions between companies. Right, so we did something around, um, you know, where Amazon uh, supply chain workers go when they leave, 
Um, and more and more popular these who, who, want, who wanted to know that kind of thing you i mean in vague terms who uh, kind of company uh, was interested in that it was a it was a fund who was analyzing uh logistics companies and so but why does where amazon supply chain people help them what question does that help them answer do you know yeah it was really i mean the 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 theory behind it was really that amazon has built this you know a tremendous empire of logistics and they're and they're sort of leading the world in supply chain optimization and um and people that work on that team are building just you know very valuable experience and and that and that knowledge that that Amazon has built will will um sort of um flow to the rest of the to the rest of the world at some point um but you know that that transition will be mostly through employees that have worked there before. So trying to see who would be the major uh, beneficiaries of that transmission uh, sooner. Uh, no, that's interesting. Okay, because Amazon's the leading edge of this. So who is the the the, the beneficiary of the, the second edge? Who's, who's, who's it flowing down to next? Exactly, presumably, yeah. Presumably, hypothetically, it might be a company who has decided that Amazon is what they want. And so they're willing to pay over the odds for Amazon staff. And so then they're going to see the benefits in the following years, perhaps. Yeah. And and that really, I mean, it's such a flexible analysis so that it can be, it can really be applied to anyone who's at the leading edge of, of anything. Mm. So, you know, we, we've seen clients who, who want to know where uh, data engineers from Palantir are going, um, where, um, you know, software developers from Google are going, you know, th- these are you know, we, we've certainly seen the the PayPal mafia. You know, the um, the early employees of PayPal have all gone on to do amazing things. So, it, so I think um, I think this this theory that that the the leaders in the future will be all from a, a very condensed um, source of talent. It, you know, it's probably got some merit to it, and and I think um, you know people get very creative with this data. Well, that's it. That's what I was going to say. Do you know, because that sounds like, so there's a lead. Somebody has said, right, the Palantir uh, data guys are incredible and they're going to be driving it. But do you know how they're forming these, how they're forming these theories? Is there a, is there a step above you in the chain, which is where the theories are, uh, are formed? And then it comes to you in terms of actually putting it through. Do you, do you have an idea how that works? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. My, my sense is that it's pretty, um, it's pretty ad hoc. I think it's probably very discretionary. Just you know, someone someone has heard uh, that that Palantir is doing very well in data engineering, so you know, just just think to look at this in an ad hoc way. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really think that people do this in a very sophisticated way, but I I think I mean I hope that that's kind of where we're headed. Yet that's exactly the kind of maybe this is yeah. the space you ought to be moving into, like uh, trying yeah. to trying to generate generate these ideas. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so much to do with this data. It's it's just you know, it seems like every every day or every week there's some there's some new kind of cool idea where I'm just like, oh man, I would love to just um, you know take a take a month and just dive deep into this this one area. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, and so, and then perhaps on more on more traditional methods, then hiring and firing is a very good source of how a company's doing. You kind of touched on it, but do you st- do you find still people people are still using your data for that, or is that a bit old kind of old old hat? Oh yeah, I mean it's still very big. I, I don't I don't think it's going to go anywhere anywhere soon, anytime soon. 
Um, I mean, we've only been around for a couple of years, so I think um, you know we're we're still kind of uh, newbies in the market. So probably, sorry, probably it's it's my I, probably because I've been doing this podcast. I I think things are old hat when actually <laughs> just because I hear, <laughs> hear about them so much at the moment. Yeah, um, but do you have do you have any? I don't know. I mean, as you say, you've only had a couple of years, but do you, you don't have any examples of times where your data revealed the company was um, about to have a really good time or a really bad time, anything like that? We we do have some uh, some examples of that. Um, yeah, I mean, we started we started a newsletter um, maybe I, don't know, I want to say like seven eight months ago, and um, and we we've made some some calls that that have panned out and some that you know remain to be seen. But we did we did predict that um, that Pfizer would be the first uh, with a vaccine. So um, you know wow. we we're proud of that prediction. How did you know that? Um, it, we we really looked at people with skills in vaccination, and actually felt that it uh, saw that it was going down across the board uh, over the last decade or so. Um, but at Pfizer and uh, one other, but I'm forgetting, it was kind of remaining constant. So Pfizer has not decreased uh, the number of scientists who are skilled in vaccines. Well, really, everyone else has. It's the kind of it's that's the kind of information which you might expect somebody within the space to know in that, um, you know, we we're good at this. Those guys over there at Pfizer, they're good at vaccines type thing. Um, but it's your it seems like your database, your your data allows somebody to have that privileged access to the sector. You know, you get the knowledge that perhaps the specialists within the sector will have, which is wonderfully kind of universal and ubiquitous. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, I think that is fair. I mean, I mean, so so one way of viewing this is that you know you can sort of see what the what uh, what the board sees, what the what the operators of the company sees. Um, but I I even think it goes further than that. I mean, I I can tell you that that we see a lot more about what's going on with the workforce of IBM than I did while I was working at IBM, <laughs> which is just a crazy like it's it's a insane state of affairs. Um, but also I think, um, I think there's just some questions that, um, that, you know, even if a company does have access to this data, um, you know, there's, there's just not, not enough hands on deck to, to analyze everything like this. Mm. So, you know, scientists who are skilled in vaccination, like that's kind of maybe a more obvious, um, concern. But there are others, there are other kind of internal dynamics of a company that maybe a company hasn't really thought, but but Wall Street analysts or consultancies um, can kind of have some ideas that a company might not have. How uh, private are the questions that are being asked by your clients? I'm just immediately think when you say that, I think if I was a, if I was a company, then I might be tempted to come to you and ask what questions are being asked about me. <laughs> because yeah. That might give some clue as to, you know, what I, what I ought to be doing. Yeah. Um, hmm. It really varies. It, a lot. It, it, sounds, it hasn't happened. It sounds like it's, it hasn't been an issue. It hasn't really been an issue yet. Um, but, you know, maybe it will be. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so who else? So you, you've said there's a there's a multitude of, of people um, mining your, your data in different ways. How, how, are, how are corporates using your data or, or another example of some sort? Yeah. So so in the corporate space, I think um, really the two biggest users of this have been consultancies and um, competitive insights teams. 
So we haven't really gone into the HR analytics world yet. Um, it, it's just, you know, they're, they're, you know, I think probably not going to be the immediate early adopters. Um, but I think, um, I think among consultancies, it's been really interesting. So, so one, one piece of that is, is kind of, um, coming to a company with, uh, a much deeper view of, of their, of their workforce than they'd initially known. So, so mostly consultancies are working with, um, strategy teams, uh, maybe corp dev, uh, kind of C-suite executives. Um, so, so the ability to go very deep is, is very attractive, but also what's interesting about the way consultancies operate is that they kind of have to, um, you know, at least my sense of, of how they operate is that they, they, you know, close a deal and then kind of have to wait a little bit until they get data access and figure out how to ingest the company's data and then derive some insights and some analytics. But what, what we can enable is really getting into the analysis much, much more quickly. So maybe even before they close a deal, certainly before they get access to a company's data. So it can reduce the time to value um, like by an enormous amount. Interesting. And so broadly, you've got obviously quite a good um, overview of the market and the hiring and firing and the salaries, et cetera. Do you, do you, do you look at the data on a kind of trend basis as well? Are you, are you watching how the, how the, you know, how the matrix is moving um, or, or are you, um, are you much more kind of in the weeds and actually dealing with, with the day to day a bit more? Yeah. I, I, I wish we, we had more, more opportunity to kind of um, do the analysis, but, but we, we are much more in the weeds. Um, I mean, we're a pretty small team. We're just, um, you know, uh, 10, 10 people now, and we're all kind of data scientists, data engineers, economists. And, um, and even so, you know, I think, I think our focus is really putting together, you know, this, this usable data set that is, you know, very granular and very, um, intuitive and, and kind of, kind of building a foundation for others to build on top of. And, and sometimes, you know, if there's, you know, extreme changes like, um, you know, salaries are dropping or whatever. We we might not even see that until we do some analysis or newsletter on it. Um, so sometimes we'll do a newsletter and we'll we'll see something. We'll see that something's been going on for six months. We'll be like, wow, holy cow! How has no one, you know, caught this or talked about it? Uh, like what? Um, well, one example that I, I thought was kind of crazy was um, uh, we saw with job postings. Um, since since COVID, there was a pretty a pretty healthy recovery in the volume of job listings um, from from March to the present, and we've seen commentary on that. There there are other um, there are other kind of data providers that look at job listings, and you know everyone had kind of been reporting um, you know a sort of steady recovery, uh, and and sort of extrapolating from that that the, the that the um, demand for jobs was increasing, um, and we saw that too. But what I think others were missing was that at the same time, the salaries of those new postings were falling by a lot. So, so we could see that, you know, even though volumes were increasing, salaries were falling. So it really wasn't quite right to say that um, demand was recovering just because, um, 
you know, the, the employers were not willing to pay high salaries for these jobs. You could say that's a trend of the last 10 years, though, couldn't you, in a way, all this, all this everyone working unemployment remain has remained low, but the chat is that people are working two or three jobs and there's much more of these gig economy and things like that. Would you, are you, do you think it's accelerated during COVID that, that, that trend? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a, it's a very good observation that, that this could part of, this could kind of be part of the, the wage stagnation story and, and jobless recovery and all that. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot to dig into about this. And I, and I think a lot of kind of mysteries about the labor market that, um, that, we we have we don't have such a good sense of yet, and and I think that's kind of why we're working a lot with academics. So you know I think um, you know when I was um, in academia do, doing uh, research on labor economics, th- there was really I, I mean I hate to kind of disparage the field. I think there are a lot of researchers doing amazing things, but but there there wasn't really a good foundation for labor economics data that that others could kind of build on. So I think as a field. Um, the, the findings have been more narrow than they could be. So, so I think, um, you know, working with academics to kind of enable the field of labor economics, um, you know, is kind of personally very important to me. One, one trend, which, which might be, which I would, I would be interested in is obviously that, I, I mean, my suspicion would be what you're describing might be an increase in, um, remote work and and advertising for remote work is that if you're if you're competing suddenly with everyone across perhaps america or even across across the world then that mm. might might keep demand for jobs or oh, sorry amount of jobs high while at the same time also lowering um wages and so would that be would that be something you could track is that something you're you're seeing and uh, are jobs going to the philippines which are previously going to america are you, are you aware of that yeah, it's such a good question and such an important question. Um, so, so I think, I think it is it is certainly a possibility. Um, like, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that if that were the direction we'd be heading in. Um, and uh, yeah, it's probably a little a little soon to to see that um, because right now, I mean, we don't we don't really know how how firms are going to adapt to the kind of post-COVID world where they're already kind of optimized for remote work. Um, but it kind of stands to reason that, that they'd um, tap into a more global uh, labor supply. And one thing that we've, um, that we've done, we, we've, we've been looking at to the, into the number of job postings that are tagged as remote. And we're also looking to see at the, the jobs that are, that are tagged as remote. So which jobs are most suitable to remote work? And um, and how that's evolving over time. So so I think we we can get a sense for who is most likely to um, to kind of head in that direction first, and then um, and then kind of track the geographies that these that these companies are hiring in. So wow. I, I I hope that um, that we do see a more a more globalized uh, labor market. Um, well, I, uh, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I fairly hope that if it if it drives wages down massively in the Western world, then <laughs> I have right. I have <laughs> so professionally, like a stepping outside myself, I hope that as well. Yes. Right, 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 right. I guess, I guess, selfishly, it, it is it is kind of nice if um, if wages are high in the Western world because that's you know kind of where I am and where my family is. But um, 
But I, I, I do think that even if, um, like, like the, the, the kind of increase in wages in the, in the developing world will probably, I, I, I think would be such a huge positive globally that, um, that'll sort of, um, come around to the Western world more than, more than if, if we were more isolationist, isolationist, but that's, you know, my own personal bias as a, as a, as a, as a globalist, but, um, completely, I think probably I I probably misspoke because as an, as a podcast, I think I should be, I should be in a spaceship circling the planet, having no view on what happens within it and having no stake in it myself. So I, 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 I scrap what I said before and I do hope (laughs) wages, uh, equal out uh, evenly everywhere. Um, but no, I mean, it raises an interesting prospect for the coming, um, you know, if this trend does happen, then um, a, a client could use you because presumably there would be potentially a race for global talent um, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, finding that the most valuable global talent is in, you know, Vietnam instead of the Philippines or vice versa or whatever. And um, actually, yeah. So uh, anyway, we're, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, maybe. For yeah, future, yeah. You're, <laughs> it's you're, exciting. You're well, you're well positioned either way, I would say. Um Finally, can I just ask you, because I've heard you speak interestingly before about ESG, which is obviously a, a subject close to a lot of investors' hearts. Um, so on the social side, we, we do see um, uh, gender and ethnicity distributions uh, within a company. And, and that's, that's pretty exciting um, because we can, we can slice and dice that by seniority, by geography, by role. So, so you can really start seeing diversity and inclusion metrics in a much deeper, more granular way than um, than than before, so that's that's exciting, um, and also also on the social side, you know, attrition and sort of proxies for for company culture, um, and then on the governance side, it's interesting, but we can see um, kind of specific um, skills or specific roles that are opening up, like you know, did this company just hire a um, you know, a chief sustainability officer or, uh, whatever, you know, we, we could see, you know, if they are, um, you know, if they're transforming their workforce to, to, um, to kind of meet these, uh, these, uh, these needs to become more, more socially conscious. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. Um, Ben, uh, this has been a really interesting chat. Um, Thank you for following me on wide ranging future of the world topics. Um, And uh, I think, yeah, I think that the story is that your data is just sounds so extensive and and has such potential that, um, that, yeah, I I think you're going to have your hands full either way in the coming years. So it's going to be exciting. (laughs) I hope so. Thanks. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining Ben and um, we'll be watching with interest. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.